All we have had, all that we are, all that we will be is yours. From beginning to end, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Holy, holy, holy. To the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Encircling our lives with your grace and your goodness. All we can do is offer ourselves to you in adoration and worship, which we do this day. We bless you. We bless the work of your hands. We give you honor and we give you glory today, Lord God. As you have spoken to us, speak to us afresh again, yet even now, as you share with us and unpack for us your word to our lives for this day. Come and speak, we pray. We welcome you, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, God of Gods, and all God's people say, Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord this morning, and good morning, and let me add my welcome to all the other welcomes you've already heard today. My name is Pastor Jim Olson, and no, I did not wake up and put on my pajamas. This is my uh, very fine, comfortable African wear today. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing a study that uh, we have just begun on, uh, entitled Follow Me, on uh, the next several chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're looking at Matthew 8 through 12 over the next several months leading up to Advent uh, at the end of November. And so uh, if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to pull it out. If you don't have a Bible, there's one located in a seat rack in front of you. Please pull that out because uh, it will be helpful for you and for me uh, if together we are interacting with the text. So uh, you can pull out your uh, device if you've got the scripture there and uh, just encourage you to join us. If you are a student here, uh, sixth grade and under, and you don't yet have a, um, if you don't have a, a worksheet to work through here this morning, uh, would you raise your hand? Anybody need a worksheet? Usher, somebody? Okay, so we need some worksheets here. Uh, we've got those. All right, keep those hands up. All right. I've seen some pretty old-looking sixth graders with their hands up when the... Uh, when the worksheets are out there, but uh, that's okay. If you're, uh, if you're in need of that, uh, you are welcome to uh, grab hold of, of that. That'll just kind of help you as we focus together. This morning, we're going to be looking at the issue of the authority of Jesus, and our focus is on Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. A familiar scripture to many of us, um, but one that has uh, some... Uh, great significance uh, for us in the context of following after Jesus. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then Jesus said to the centurion, go and let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Lord, we just again ask that your word would speak to us today. Life-giving word for this moment. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know, I feel like I'm getting some echo here, uh, our sound folk, I'm not sure if that's just me or my thought, but it feels kind of echoey up here. All right, so let's just begin at the beginning of this passage. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Now, a lot of times, as we're reading through scriptural narrative, we sort of kind of read through what we think might simply be filler. It's just kind of like, well, it's just getting us from point A to point B, However, if we really dig down and drill deep into the scripture, we begin to discover that even those um, scriptures which appear just sort of to be place markers taking us from from point A to point B uh, provide us some very important context. And such is the case this morning, so I want to just take a brief moment to kind of unpack the context here that we see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. First of all, we need to understand, in terms of context, the geography or the reality of what it means that Jesus was here at Capernaum in Galilee. Now, if you go back to the beginning of, um, in in chapter 4, before the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice that Jesus went, uh, let's look at it there for just a moment. Uh, Verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said of the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Say with me, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. All right, so here's some context that we need to understand about this issue of Capernaum and why Jesus began his ministry in Capernaum. Capernaum was the northernmost district of Israel on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a densely populated trade crossroads surrounded by Gentile territories and was... Um, the most diverse and the most highly populated area in Israel. So I want you to notice, you know, Jesus does things with intention. He goes to um, Capernaum here in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. He goes to where the trade crossroads, the the busiest place in in the whole region, and the place with the most diverse population, the place where there was the greatest amount of interaction with Gentiles, this is the place that Jesus begins his ministry. So I want you to take note of that because that's very significant, again, in even understanding Jesus' heart and his kingdom mandate. Even right up front here, we're beginning to understand that Jesus has something else going on even than what the expectations of the religious leaders of the time would have had for him. Now that becomes even more apparent when we look here at these first three pictures that are given to us in Matthew chapter 8. When we notice Jesus' influence, and last week we looked at the influence of Jesus, and I would encourage you to get a hold of the 
the, the PowerPoint notes and the um, CDs of that, which are available in the back, where you can go onto the website and get that to get some more context about the influence of Jesus. But here's what I want you to not just kind of run past, because it says that Jesus went to Capernaum in Galilee, and there a centurion came to him. Now, who was the first person that Jesus ministered to? Uh, sermon points for anybody who happened to be awake last week, all right? Who did Jesus minister to last week? And extra points, if you can read a little bit further beyond verse 13 to see who is Jesus going to minister to in the word that we're going to be receiving next week. Peter's mother-in-law. He said, well, here, here's, here's the interesting point. The first three individuals that Jesus ministers to are a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. So already, Jesus is giving us... I mean, he's, he's already beginning to, to stir the pot and take things upside down. The, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. So the three people that would have been perhaps the most marginalized in that culture at that time was a leper who literally could not even be in the context of the community because of their skin condition. A centurion who was a hated worker of the Roman Empire that was, was you know, a, 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 a soldier in the Roman Empire who was uh, the ones who was, who was dominating the people of Israel, and then a woman. I mean, a Jewish male woke up every morning with a prayer in his heart that said, thank God that you have not made me a Gentile or a woman. Or a slave. <laughs> Any of those three. But Jesus reaches out and begins to touch those who were untouchable. So the context gives us here a prophetic, revelatory insight into the nature of the kingdom of God, which transcends and transforms all earthly cultures. Say transcends and transforms. Those are key words to understanding. The kingdom of God transcends and transforms all earthly cultures. Even American culture? Mm. Even the culture of the, of the place that you have come from? Mm. Galatians 3.28, which is a familiar scripture to many of you, but it's a powerful recognition. So 26 to 28, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all, say all, all one in Christ. So that's our context. Now before we push deeper into the passage, let me just take you for a moment back to a, uh, a figure, a diagram that I showed you last week that, that helps us to get more context for what Jesus is up to as we look through the whole of Matthew 8 through 12. Actually, as we look through the whole gospel. The gospel being the very power of God, the very living reality presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords with us. Well, 
we notice that Jesus is engaged in three kinds of activities. There's the word of truth, there's wonders of power, and there's works of love. There's that proclamation, confirmation, and demonstration. And all three are integral parts of the extension of the kingdom of God. So it must be with us. Various churches and various movements down through church history have sort of um, uh, often emphasized one or the other of these three components of kingdom influence into the world. But I would say to you, and what I want to recommend to you, and where we are at as a leadership here at Bethel Christian Fellowship, is we believe in order to, to accurately represent the king and represent the kingdom of God into this world, we need to be engaged in all three of these kinds of ways in which the kingdom is extended. Through proclamation of the word of truth, through the confirmation of that word through wonders of power, and through the demonstration of both those words and wonders through works of love and compassion and justice. Okay? So this is, this is a well-balanced, this is what a well-balanced ministry looks like. This is what Jesus was engaged in, and he is inviting us to follow him into this kind of ministry. Now, there's three components of the passage that we're going to quickly look through here together. The first is the issue of authority. The first is the issue of authority. Look at this scripture again, Matthew 8, 6-9. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terrible. Now, this is the, the centurion coming to Jesus. This is the centurion was a soldier who was um, in the Roman army, very integral to the Roman army doing, you know, in its domination of the world. Uh, a centurion was one who had approximately 100 soldiers that were under their authority that they issued the commands to. So they were, they were sort of that um, critical place, kind of like, I don't know, an army sergeant. You know, they, they, were, they were somebody who had a critical um, part of, uh, of, of the the works of the army being accomplished in a particular region and area, all right? So he says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, listen to this, shall I come and heal him? Now it's interesting because Jesus has two significant interactions with Gentiles that are recorded for us in Scripture. This is, or in the Gospel here, this is one of them. Another of them is when he has the interaction with the Gentile woman, and we'll get to that, and you remember that. And in both cases, he sort of pushes back on their request with a question. Well, shall I come and heal him? In other words, sort of like, why are you coming to me? You're a Gentile here. I'm a, this Jewishly, you know, and, and, and so, I mean, obviously Jesus is much more than that, but, but in the cultural context here, Jesus sort of presses back with a question. And the centurion replied, and, and it's sort of like, I think Jesus is sort of the subtext to the question is, you want me to come to your house? Uh, me, a Jew, come to your, a Gentile's home? And, you know, all, really? 
the centurion sort of picks up on that. And notice what he says. I love this. He says, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just what? Say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So here's some understanding then that we need to grab about authority. And, and much of it here is wrapped up in even the word that the centurion comes to Jesus to say who, you know, as, as he's coming to Jesus, he says, Lord. The leper said the same thing in the previous passage, Lord. Kyrios or kurios. It, it's sometimes in the Greek spelled K-U-R-I-O-S or in, in the English translation of that in the Greek, K-Y. So if you see that in some Latin music or in Greek, you know, whatever, the, the kyrios is the, is the word here uh, that, that you'll see um, used of is the specific word for Lord used here in the Scripture, the Greek word for Lord. All right, so what does that mean? Well, first of all, it immediately connects, and it's the same word used in our English translations that is used for Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament. It means the majestic I am. In the book of John, there are seven times where Jesus says, I am. And you get the immediate connection back to Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I am that I am. So, so when the, the centurion says, Lord, already he's, he's giving us some intonation of who Jesus is. He is Yahweh, the majestic I am. He is also, this is very clear, that this is a, a title of rulership, the one who reigns. Remember, we've defined the kingdom of God as the rule and reign of the king, Christ. So, so immediately this word Lord brings up for us and evokes that sense and that understanding that he is the ruler, the one who reigns. The third is critical to our understanding of what we're doing here in our study of Follow Me. And that is the word Lord means master. Now, all of you have at one, probably or maybe you've seen at one time or another, used a copy machine. And when you put a piece of paper that you want copied into the copy machine, what do you call the piece of paper that you're copying? The master. Because you want it as clear. Now, some of us can remember way back when, I remember way back when, when I was first in ministry 30 plus years ago, do you remember the old mimeograph machine, okay? Yeah, and... and God help you if what came out looked even remotely like what went in, okay? And, and it's got, okay? But, but the point of discipleship is to become a clearer and clearer representation of the master. The one whom we are following. Now, let me give you a little bit more context or, or pull this out for a moment because there's a there's a difference between power and authority. There's a distinction between power and authority. Power is the ability, the might, the strength to complete a given task. Authority is the right to use that power. Sometimes authority is demonstrated in a way through Like a policeman standing here before a semi going, stop. Do they have the physical power to stop the semi? 
but they've been given the authority to do so, right? Because the power lies with the uniform and what the uniform represents. Because if you don't stop for me, there's going to be somebody who's going to stop you. Right? So Jesus gives us, we're given power and authority as disciples of the Master, Luke 9, 1 and 2. Go there, read that. And we receive that power and authority not by being good, but rather by being God's. This is a critical scripture, Ephesians chapter 2. You know it well. It's, again, one of the first verses of scripture I ever learned after John 3.16. Ephesians 2, I learned 8 and 9, but 10 has to be a part of the context here. Because it says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship or handiwork or masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. He has prepared good works for you to do in advance. But it's not, your authority doesn't come out of being good, it comes out of being God critical distinction. John Wimber, who uh, wrote several books, one of really helpful books, one of them is Power Evangelism. He was the beginner, the the founder of the Vineyard Movement. Um, He wrote this. Listen to this carefully. Our difficulty is that we have not learned to receive or give orders. To a great extent, we practice a cosmetic Christianity because we misunderstand our initial call to Christ. We think that the key for maturity and power is to be good. We then focus on our behavior, but our behavior never meets the high standards of Christ's righteousness. I did this for years. By focusing on my behavior, I was in constant turmoil because my behavior was never good enough, never meeting God's standards or my standards of righteousness. I first believed in Christ because I was not good, yet after becoming a Christian, I still struggled in my own strength with not being good enough. So I was always under conviction, always struggling with guilt. Then one day, he writes, 16 years ago, I fell to my knees and asked God to help me. And he responded, since you can do nothing without me, how much help do you want? Then he said, the issue is not being good, it is being God's. Just come to me and I'll fully, and I will provide goodness for you. Now, I didn't fully understand his words. What did he mean, I'll provide goodness for you? I was confused. So for the next five years, I tried to be good in my own strength. I soon became more and more despondent. Finally, I began to ask God about what he had told me earlier concerning his goodness. He explained that he had good works prepared for me, but that they were his works, and I could not do them for him. He told me that I needed to begin to listen to his voice rather than to try to distill the Christian life down to a set of rules and principles. I began to listen more during my times of prayer and scripture study and more consciously talked with him throughout the normal activities of the day. And something interesting began to happen. He put new desires and attitudes in me. His spirit began to strengthen me to do righteous acts I had previously had no desire for. I began to hear his voice throughout the day and good works were multiplied in my life. Today, I no longer try to be good. Instead, I am only concerned with doing God's bidding and what he commands, I do. 
Now my personal life is more conformed to his righteousness and character than it used to be. Following his commands doesn't leave much time for sin. Most of us are confused about how to live a life of faith. We can't understand or relate to the superhuman efforts it took to do the things that Jesus did. The reason is that too often, listen, we're searching for methods, formulas, and principles that will open the power of God to us, becoming frustrated each time we try another key that does not work. Again, we are not the kingdom. We are instruments of the kingdom, and the works of the kingdom are performed through us. Thus, our purpose is to witness about what God has done, is doing, and will do. Like Jesus, we have to come to do the will of the Father. When asked how we should pray, Jesus taught us, Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the centurion did, we must learn how to hear and believe Jesus' commands if we expect to be vehicles of signs and miracles for the kingdom. And all God's people said, that's good stuff. So we're talking about this issue of authority. So, so as we finish or, or continue this conversation, what do I do with my clicker? All right, there it is. We need to move on to then the response of the centurion of faith. Look at this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Among all these religious people, among all of the Israelites, among all of the, quote, people of God, I haven't found the kind of faith that I'm seeing in this Gentile soldier. So, what do we learn about faith, or what can we discover about faith? Well, three things that I want to just quickly mention to you. First is the issue of position. We enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus as Lord. So that's where our position in Christ comes from. Not out of what you do, but about, uh, out of who you are and who you become because of Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 say these words. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So salvation, our position in Christ, comes through faith, which is declaring and recognizing who Jesus is. And that gives us a position in him. Our posture, I want you to notice the posture of the centurion, which was, Lord, I don't even deserve to have you come in our home. Much like the leper's posture, which was to come and bow and kneel before the Lord, before Jesus. We live in the context of the kingdom of God with a profound awareness of our own inadequacy and a profound awareness of his adequacy. As John the Baptist said, I, I'm not even fit to untie the sandals. Paul said, I'm the least of all of the apostles. The one thing that's constant throughout the leaders of Scripture is that they always had a profound awareness of their own inadequacy. If you don't have a profound awareness of your own inadequacy, I question where you are in the context of your true faith. Faith isn't about mustering up and, I'm going to scrabble mighty It's not that. It's recognizing I can do nothing apart from him. Nothing. 
And the practical outworking of that is this, that we live out the kingdom with unlimited confidence in the authority of Jesus. So faith, this was the centurion. He was just living it out. I mean, he got it right from the very beginning here. It's amazing, and that's where Jesus, his faith was incredible. As it says in Matthew 17, 20, you have so li- because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. It has to do with our unlimited confidence going back last week to Hebrews 4, to approach the throne of grace that we can approach with humble boldness to the king. This is the faith that the centurion demonstrated. This is our faith that we're called to. First, to position ourselves in Christ. We're not going to do any of these things outside of that. We position ourselves in there, postured before him with a profound awareness of our inadequacy and his adequacy, and then practically we have unlimited confidence in him. He can do all things. As I come to prayer now, I come to prayer very differently than I used to in the context of even praying around the issue of signs and wonders and authority. It's not so much about what I have to work myself up into. It's what I have to open myself and and, and posture myself to receive. And I just come to that place of deep trust and confidence in him. Jesus will do what he said he would do, and he will do what he chooses to do because he's Lord and I'm not. And he's got the authority. So it takes out all of the strain and the struggle and brings us to a place of contentment in him. All right, so we've got to hurry to the close here, but let's, let's not overlook this because this is the end of the passage. It's very interesting that, that Matthew places this whole piece right here in the context of the healing of the centurion's servant. He says, I say to you, Jesus says here, I say to you, now here's his words of truth, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do we got going here? Well, back to the context of Capernaum and the first people that Jesus, we, we, we get a picture here now. He's saying, I'm giving you a picture of what the kingdom of God is and the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, first of all, it's like a feast. One prophetic picture of the kingdom of heaven is a great banquet filled with the good and gracious gifts of God. Isaiah 25, which is a a key understanding in the Old Testament scriptures about the feast, says this. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from their all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I can't wait for that feast. How about you? It's the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And the ones who get to partake are those who have responded to the invitation of the Lord. This response is, now here's the key of what Jesus was saying. The response is one of faith, not heritage. He's saying to those that are around there who are Jewish, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're going to be at the banquet. 
Just because your heritage is part of the kingdom of God. No, you've got to come through me. Jesus alone has the authority to determine who is inside and who is outside of the kingdom. People ask, well, you know, is that person saved or not? Well, you know, Jesus knows. But I can tell you this, that he said these words in John chapter 14, those very familiar words. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, if that were not so. Would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Jesus said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He's the doorway. He's the gate into the kingdom feast. You can't go above him, below him, or around him. You've got to go through him. He's got the authority. We respond in faith. And I love this. Kingdom comes. You know, at the end, sort of a, a tag on at the end of the, of, of the passage. says, well, then Jesus said to the servant, centurion, go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Here's the, here's the reality that we live in, is that the kingdom is here and continues to come into our everyday lives, lived lives, breaking in and out with truth and power and love. The kingdom of God is always, the kingdom of God is here, it is with us, it is here and not yet, it is still unfolding, but the reality is in the lived lives that we live, he is still breaking out. He is still breaking out with truth, power, and love. Thank you for your attentive listening this morning. We've had a lot of, of encouragement that has come to us in many forms today. So grateful for those. Thank you, Ernest and Judy, for sharing your story of grace. Thank you, Karen and Vern, for bringing courage to us in testimony. Thank you for Elizabeth for sharing with us what's been going on in your life. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, all of us, all of you for participating together in this work. Sometimes people ask me, well, why on earth do you have services that last two hours? Isn't it boring and tedious? Well, it's never boring. And it takes some time to unfold together as a community, to live in the spirit and the word and to have... And so I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm just simply going to remind us that we go forth now from this place into the rest of our lived lives. How many ever hours, what is it in a week? 168 or something like that? The other 166 hours of our life now. But with the, the hope that we've talked about, and we're going to sing this song of declaration to kind of put an exclamation point. I asked the worship team if we could do that this song this morning as a close. Because it just brings this all together about the authority of Jesus. So if we could stand to our feet. But I want us to sing this together. And we're going to sing it um, wherever you see I, we're going to sing we because I feel like we need to do this corporately together today as a people. Declare of the glory that will cover the earth. Come on, sing with me. Sing with us now. Here we go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's hold our hands open before the Lord right now.
Lord, this is the reality for which you have proclaimed and spoken. This is truth, and it is life to us this very day. And now, Lord God, we receive that reality here, now, in this place. And we pray, God, that you would fill us afresh this very day. With the immeasurable love of God the Father, with the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours as you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with the banner of his favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy will chase you down. Every day of your life, be blessed, O people of God, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hallelujah. Go in his grace. Hallelujah.